At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Shashi Muso. She had four buttholes. I saw her naked once, and there were four separate entities. It was amazing. That and more. But before that, I just wanted to let you know, if you don't already know about it, one of the very, very best things we've ever offered from the storystudio.org is now available. It's our video course called Intro to Storytelling, Wow Your Crowd. It's three hours of lectures by me and many pages of workbook material that you can download to workshop your own stories. There are stories that have been featured on Risk that are annotated and footnoted. There are the favorite storytellers of ours that we've had on Risk share stories and discuss them with me on the course. You'll learn how to create characters that are dimensional. You'll learn how to build tension and evoke emotion. You'll go through exercises in which you brainstorm on the most story-worthy moments of your experience. You'll learn about the difference between narrative summary and scenic details, the six senses, the five beats of classic story structure, the three essential elements of all stories, and the big so what, creating a controlling idea, a thematic idea that runs through your story. You can do it all in your own time, watching the videos, reading the stories, working on the worksheets, recording your own stories, listening back to them, and revising them. Whether or not you've ever taken a storytelling workshop before, even if you've taken a story studio workshop before, we have learned so much over the years in all of our workshops with all of our students, and it's all right here in Intro to Storytelling, Wow Your Crowd. Go get it today. It's at thestorystudio.org, and it's life-changing stuff. That's Intro to Storytelling, Wow Your Crowd, at thestorystudio.org. Now here's the show.
show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. This is EST behind me now. I saw them once live at the Jazz Standard in New York City, and they were incredible. I'm Kevin Allison, and I'm speaking to you from a hotel room in Reno, Nevada, where we just did a wonderful Risk Live show last night. You'll be hearing stuff from that soon. But today's episode is called Loaded. Three stories of intoxication, my friends. Uh, Intoxication of various kinds. You know how much I love those altered states kind of stories. And those altered states themselves. Although I am uh, over 90 days sober now. Over 90 days, no pot, alcohol, or poppers. My three big vices in that realm, and also over 60 days now of no non-vegan food, so I am very clean and healthy right now. Some days that is so exciting, and some days it's such a drag. My dreams, my night dreams are so much more vivid and vibrant and memorable. My, My social anxiety, my Fear of being in a room with famous people, you know, just or other comedians is just like through the roof again. I've got to learn how to deal with that. We spend our lives relearning the same goddamn lessons and trying to master the same goddamn complexes. From when we were children, I'm still that terrified little boy who's who's afraid that people are going to find out that I'm weird inside even though I now run a goddamn motherfucking show that's all about coming out and not worrying about that shit it takes endless work it takes endless work you remove a mask and then find that you're having to remove it all over again And there's a lot of that kind of stuff happening in today's show. These are stories of uh, people under the influence in good, bad, and ugly ways. In a little bit, we're going to hear from the extraordinary artist and social worker Shashi Musso. But before that, we're going to hear from an old friend of the show, Madison Perry. A wonderful storyteller in the Los Angeles area who uh, helped us bring Risk to Los Angeles way back in the day. Here he is at the Risk Live show at the Nerdist showroom with a story we call Hubbies. Hello, everybody. Good evening. Thanks for being here. So last summer, I went to uh, Burning Man for the first time. Uh, And for those of you that don't know, it's this counterculture festival, and it's in the middle of the desert in Nevada. But it's not like a music festival like Coachella. There's no performers booked. There's no main stage. And it's the middle of nowhere. There's no hotels. There's no water. There's no electricity. You can't buy anything. Ice is the only thing they sell there, so you have to bring everything you need for a week and basically 50,000 people go to the desert and just get weird for a week. Um, 
There's singing and raving and dancing and yoga and nudity and drugs and drinking. Uh, although I didn't go for any of those things, I went for sex. That was what I was interested in. I wanted to have super dirty, illicit desert sex uh, with hot hippie girls. That was like, basically how it would work in my mind was that I would show up at Burning Man and someone would greet me and he'd be like, hi, welcome. Uh, did you bring your penis? <laughs> and I'd be like, I did. And he'd be like, perfect. You're going to need it a lot. And I'd be like, okay, great. And he'd say, just head that way. There's like literally a pile of naked women ready to sex you. And I'd be like, just like a fuck pile? He'd be like, yes, a fuck pile. That's, head over, you can't miss it. It's just a fuck pile that way. Have a great time, man. That's in my head. That's kind of approximating what I thought was going to go down. Um, There was no fuck piles at Burning Man. Um, And I did not have sex with multiple partners. I did not go to an orgy. Uh, I did have sex once. Uh, I was on the last day. And uh, I was disappointed because my goal going into it was I was like, I want to fuck someone wearing a wolf mask. (laughs) And I meant it both literally and metaphorically. You know what I mean? Uh, But there was no wolf mask involved. And the thing is that Burning Man, there is a lot of sex to be had. There's nudity everywhere. There's free spirits. And there's camps. There's camps set up. There's sex camps. They, like, their theme at Burning Man is throwing orgies. Um, but my, the camp I was with uh, it was not a sex camp. We just we threw parties every day. It was, like 40, it was great. It was a great camp, but it was not a very sexual place. And I could have gone to the orgy camps, except uh, what I found out was single men are not invited to orgies. Uh, and the, the reason, it was explained to me, the reason is if single men were invited to orgies, orgies would be nothing but single men. <laughs> It'd just be like a bunch of dudes being like, so when's this orgy kicking off? <laughs> like that would there'd be, you know, so. Uh, and there was a lot of free spirits there. Maybe I could have had to like pick someone up, but I'm not like a pickup artist, one night stand kind of guy. Like I'm good at dating you know, talking to someone, getting their number, asking them out. But at Burning Man, there's no cell phone reception. There's no internet. So there's no meeting up later. So basically, what you have to do is be like, hey, person I just met, want to go have sex in the tent I share with three dudes? I got an air mattress covered in sand. How's that sound? And I could not figure out how to make that sound seductive, that line, at all. Uh, So I just did not do well with women while I was there. But I still had a good time because instead of going on a sexual odyssey, I fell in love with a man. Uh, And we didn't have sex. I didn't come out of the closet. Uh, What I did was way gayer than that. (laughs) I met a guy named Pedro, and I fell head over heels in friendship. We really fell for each other. And the way it happened, and this is how a lot of things happen at Burning Man, is drugs. Drugs were highly involved. And I am not like a big drug guy. Before I went to Burning Man, I had, uh, other than pot, I'd done cocaine once, and I'd tried shrooms once, and and that was it. And I was from the D.A.R.E. generation, and I wasn't sure about drugs. Um, Like, I'm I'm so not a drug guy that when I was writing this story, I googled, can you get in trouble for saying you did drugs? Uh, And it, yeah. It turns out you can't, uh, according to Yahoo Answers. Which I believe will stand up in court. So I feel comfortable telling this story. So not a drug guy, but I was like, I'm going to Burning Man. I'm going to be open to stuff, man. I'm just going to let whatever happens. Like, 
I'm going to do some drugs. I'm going to be a drugger. That's what I'm going to do, <laughs> as they're called. Um, so the first, uh, the second night I was there, our entire camp of 30 people all dropped acid. And I was like, well, let's go straight to the top with this thing. Um, and so I took some acid, too. And the thing I, I learned that night, um, I learned why people do drugs, and it's because they're super fun. <laughs> they're the best. It turns out... I love LSD. It's amazing. Uh, and so we went out, 30 of us, and we wandered into the desert. At first, my skin was tingling, and then the lights were twinkling and had trails, and then solid things were kind of rippling like water. And uh, I feel like when you're drunk, you kind of you get tunnel vision. Like, whatever's in front of you has your attention. But on LSD, it felt like someone had put a wide-angle lens on my brain. <laughs> Like, I saw everything, and I felt everything, and I was like, the world is vibrating, and I'm vibrating with it. Like, and uh, the ironic thing about all the drug use at Burning Man is it's kind of the last place you need to use drugs. Like, it's a trippy place to begin with. Like, people are walking around wearing uh, steampunk gear, and there's nudity, and people, uh, at night, you have to wear lights all over you because you're out in the middle of the desert, and there's no exterior lights so you don't want to get hit and there's these things called art cars which are like modified cars that are made into these giant moving um, sculptures basically like they look like octopuses and submarines and trains and they all have lights on them and they blare music and they shoot fire into the air like it's crazy and then you, then you throw LSD onto that and you're like whoa <laughs> there was a few times where I was like Madison you're just on drugs that's why things look weird you're not in the movie Tron <laughs> Like, that was, that was how I had to, like, keep myself. Um, so at some point on the night, in the middle of this trip, we end up at a place called the Temple at Burning Man. The Temple is this big kind of uh, cathedral-looking thing, and it's made all of wood, and it's very ornate and very beautiful, and they burn it at the end of the week, and it's this, like, zen impermanence thing because it gets done right before Burning Man, and then they burn it at the end. It exists for a week, and it's sort of the, the holy place at uh, Burning Man. So when you go in, like, people are crying and telling stories, and, uh, and the people put pictures on the wall of loved ones that died in the previous year, including dogs and cats, which was a little weird. There's, <laughs> like, a poster-sized picture of a cat was one of the first things I saw when I walked in. I was like, what is... Uh, and it's like super sincere and, and kind of weird, to be honest. Like you go and you're like, oh, okay, this is a bit weird. Um, and so I'm in this temple and this is where the love affair started with Sweet Pedro. Um, we were sitting and he was kind of weirded out by the vibe in there too. So we were chatting and we got really involved in a discussion about Nicolas Cage. <laughs> And we got so involved, someone overheard us, and this very proper Englishman sat up and he said, is someone speaking of Nick Cage in the temple? And we were like, yeah. And he's like, which movie? Uh, Ghost Rider? You're not even speaking of a good Nick Cage movie in the temple. And we're like, sorry, I don't know the protocol. So we left the temple, and, and now Pedro and I, we're like partners in crime. We're like just joking around. We're giggling. We're just, uh, basically what we did for the next five hours was be like, that looks crazy. And then we'd walk over to it, and we'd be like, it is crazy. <laughs> and um, so, and I noticed that like in addition to the physical effects, I started to feel these emotional effects from the LSD, and I started to feel super bonded and it sounds weird, but it started in my head, it felt like we were a whole, like we could not be separated. Like if we got separated, it would be like we were cut in half to the point where like if Pedro was like, I gotta go to the bathroom, I was like, well, we're both going then. 
<laughs> and then we would walk over. Like, we couldn't get more than 10 feet apart. And it was weird, but adorable. Um, so, and, and the strange thing was the bond lasted past the drugs. Like, the whole week, we were, like, inseparable. We would go do things together. We'd sit together at meals. Uh, we would volunteer to bartend together at the parties our camp threw. Uh, about two days in, we started calling each other hubby. He was English, so he'd be like, need a beer, hubby? I'm like, yes, I do, what? yes. And, um, and so we were always drinking beers together, and at one point we were voted cutest couple at Burning Man by our camp. And, yeah. It was this weird thing where we just, it was, I couldn't describe it. The only reference I had for this experience was like falling in love, like love at first sight, when you just meet someone and you connect and you're like so into each other. That's what it was like with him, but with friendship. And like it wasn't sexual. Like would I have fucked him? Yeah. Um, but that's not what it was about, you know? It's not what it was about. Like he's just, I've ha I have a lot of great male friends, but this guy swept me off my feet. That's what I'm saying. And so um, we're, we're just hanging out all week, and we get to the end, and at the end of the week, they burn the man. This is how the place gets its name, and it's this 50-foot-high statue. It's made of wood. At, at that point, it's at its peak capacity. There's 50,000 people, and everyone comes out and forms this giant circle around the man, and they start to burn it, and the, the flame starts small, and then the, the whole thing gets engulfed, and it's this giant inferno, and there's pockets of fireworks going off, and there's this tension in the crowd, like waiting for this thing to burn to the ground. It takes like 30, 45 minutes. And then when the final piece fell, it was just fucking chaos. Like, people just erupt. Like, it was animalist. People were singing and dancing and yelling and kissing and taking their clothes off and crying. And just everyone's feeling all of the emotions. Uh, like, that kind of thing. And, and we started running. A lot of people started running around the ashes. And I, like, got caught up in it. And I was like, ah! And I started running with them. And I was, like, howling. And, and, and I was on LSD again, I should mention. Um, <laughs> And it was, it was just, it was insane. It was crazy. And then after about 15 minutes of just total group think, no idea what I'm doing, chaos, this thought popped into my head and it was, where's Pedro? I miss Pedro. And I had this feeling it was like the last day of camp. I was like, I have to tell him how I feel. Because <laughs> we're going home tomorrow. And so I like was running through the crowd trying to find, finally I found him and he was kind of on the edge of the crowd drinking a beer and I walked up. He's like, need a beer, hubby? And I was like, I do. And he, he had a beer in his pocket. He always had a beer in his pocket. He's great. <laughs> and um, so he had a beer and we were kind of drinking beers and silently watching what was going on. And I, I put my arm around him and I was like, Pedro, before the drugs were off, I need to tell you that I love you. I've known you five days, but you seem like one of my best friends in the world. And he kind of a choked out a thank you through tears. Hubby's a bit of a crier. Um, and he said, I love you too. And then he gave me a hug. And uh, I'm not much of a crier. Basically, like, uh, getting dumped and dogs dying. That's, like, it for me on crying. Never movies, never books. But I started, I wasn't, like, bawling, but I teared up and I started crying while I was hugging. It was probably the longest hug I've ever had with a non-relative male. Um, and so, and, and it occurred to me that I had gone to Burning, like, my Burning Man experience was going to be the fuck pile. That's what I was all about. I like, was not that into the spirituality and the hippy-dippy stuff and the sincerity. And I was like, well, here I am hugging a man and crying <laughs> on LSD. And you know what? It feels amazing. It's way better than any fuck pile ever. 
and uh, and then we hugged for a while, and then we stopped because uh, some topless girls hula hooping, and I was like, that's interesting. Um, and uh, you know, we, at the end of the week, we went. He went back to London. I, I came back here to L.A. and. Uh, you know, we're doing the long distance thing. It's uh, hard, but we email all the time. And so I was just, it was just a very, I'm not a very sincere guy in general in my life. To, so to have that moment of sincerity uh, was really great. And to, it was like I was a little kid. I'd made best friends instantly again, like you did in kindergarten and stuff. And, and that felt really good. And that's my story. Thanks. We should try master. I hear it's a real cool trip. LSD is very powerful stuff, and that's just what it is, stuff. It's not good, it's not bad, it's only a chemical, a drug. Everyone says when you drop some acid, the whole world becomes clear to you, like an open book. It would take more than LSD for me to understand what's wrong with the whole world. You may think that you know things when you're up. But you can't really know any more than you already knew before you took the LSD. LSD is the greatest gift to mankind since Tutti Frutti ice cream. I'm talking about acid, dummy. About 1976 in San Francisco, I had this great lady friend who I had met when I was in high school in Kansas. She was not in high school, but I had directed a community theater play, which I hired her for, and gossip began that we were having an affair, although most people knew I was gay, but it was like a stupid little town. I'm going to call her Joyce, because it sort of makes me feel strong. So anyway, she's a coke dealer, pot dealer, acid maker she leaves me in charge of her house she's going away to do a deal somewhere and she has like liquid acid in her freezer because you're supposed to I guess freeze liquid acid or it goes bad I don't really know but um, the refrigerator breaks when she's gone now I'm taking care of her 12 year old child too Scott delightful child and it's just like great there she was a woman that would get up in the morning before she got out of bed she needed a joint a line of cocaine, and cocoa with the small marshmallows in it. Serious, before she even took the covers off of herself. And she walked like a Giselle. She had posture. I was working for Taste of Honey Bakery on 24th and Diamond in San Francisco. San Francisco, the 70s, you know, oh, hello, hello. Oh, I ate a half an avocado today, and I feel so spaced out. You know, that kind of mentality, which I never really liked. But um, I was living in the bakery. I lived above the alcove in the door. I mean, it literally was a, a triangle-shaped thing above the entrance to the door is where my bed was. And I would balance on the beams to climb up there to go to bed, and I'd get down in the morning and bake which is really fun when you go out to bars at night and you bring someone home and you give them baked goods and tea and say, come into my bakery. And, uh, anyway, that's where I met James Kirkleski and he was with this Bonnie girl and they, there was this baby and I thought they were like a family. And he was so pretty. Well, I got sick and I had to sleep in the basement because I couldn't be sick about the door when they're open. 
So I was sleeping in the basement because I was really sick. And he came down to see how I was. And that vibe began, you know. It was there, that vibe. You wanted each other. And I'm going like, I'm really sick. He said, I don't care. And our relationship began. Bonnie was a friend. The baby was not his. He had admired me from the moment he met me. And then I was not good to him, I don't think. I loved to fool around, but I didn't want him to. So anyway, the refrigerator broke down. So she comes back. There's a big pot deal going on. We got the fat lady in the room. We've got her sister with asthma. We've got Scott, the 12-year-old child. We got my boyfriend, James Kirk Lesky. Obviously, his parents were into Star Trek. And this guy that's coming to do the deal who looks sort of like Antonio Banderas. I describe him that so it gives you a visual. He was there for a drug deal. The fat lady was a regular. She had four buttholes. She was so fat. I saw her naked once, and there were four separate entities. It was amazing. She had four buttholes. Well, it was probably one passageway, but she had four separate things coming out of there. It wasn't a hemorrhoid. So Joyce says, oh, my God, this is no good anymore. So she takes a little container of acid, shakes it on her finger like you would put on perfume, and she goes around and puts a finger on everybody's tongue saying, this is for you, saying it's no good. We tripped. Everything became one. People started melting. We must have had a hundred hits of acid each. She didn't do it to Scott. We put Scott in his room. But Scott said, butterflies. And the whole room was filled with butterflies. And I thought, oh, I'll put on music. So I make the mistake of putting on Bonnie Brahma, which is very, you know, like, uh, cowboys and Indians and everyone. Then someone said, we got to turn out the lights. But at one point, there were no seams in anything. Everything was one, was absolutely one. So I don't know where Joyce went, but then she opens her bedroom door. She's totally naked. She has a gorgeous body. And she says, I need a black plastic bag. I said, oh, oh, I'll get you a black plastic bag. Went into the kitchen. I opened the pantry. I pulled out a big black plastic bag. Then I went back to her naked body standing in the door and I said, why do you need the black plastic bag? She said, I vomited on the carpet. And she bent over and I got to see her perfectly shaped rear and she picked up the vomited carpet and she put it in the black bag and she said, Shashi, take the bag to the back. I said, yes. And I took it to the back. So I go back into the living room where people are like little bugs moving around in the dark. Afterwards, I could only imagine what they were going through. At that time, I could only deal with what I was going through. I had just done the black bag. And so Joyce's sister says, oh my God, I can't breathe. And everyone looks at Joyce's sister. 
She says, my head is falling off. Her head fell off. It rolled across the floor. Everyone's watching this. No, I'm, I'm saying this is what I saw when this happened to me. I will tell you what we talked about days later. You know, we're all in like the lettuce position, sitting at the table, eating with chopsticks. I said, remember when Joyce, I can't remember Joyce's sister's name, but I said, remember when she said, my head, and they said, and her head rolled across the floor, everyone at the same time. But we know it didn't happen. And I'm going like, God damn it, man. Everybody saw that. Joyce went over, picked it up, put it back on her sister's body, and then we went about moving around again. <laughs> and I turn around and there's light from the kitchen. And there they were on the floor. James Kirk and Antonio. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And I was so jealous. I was horrified. But I wasn't going to stop it. I didn't have the right, but you know, I do now remember that I just thought it was absolutely gorgeous. I know now that he had the right to love other people. We might still be together this day if, we, if I had allowed that. He allowed me. Well, I demanded it. I mean, it was my right. I was Shashi Muso. But I was young, I was beautiful. I was the boss, I was the money maker. I was everything. If I ever blame myself for anything in my life, it is losing that person. I knew we were all on acid. Something in me said, no, 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 no. Shashi Muso has to leave now. And the person I love was there. But I had to go back to my base, my home where I lived with many people. And I had so much acid in my system. I figured if I could regurgitate as much out of my system that I would get some of that out of there. The only way I knew to do it is to do something horrible. I went into the bathroom and I shat in my hand and I stuck it in my mouth and I chewed on it so I could vomit. I needed to do that in order to escape because I couldn't stay there. I couldn't stay there and let what I was allowing to have happen between those two. And I tripped enough in my life. I had been high on enough things, peyote, mescaline, mushrooms, that I knew I was going into the next stage. I was going to plateau into another stage, which was even higher, but I did not want to go there. I did not need to be in that group. I wanted to hold on to myself. And I had to go back to where I lived. I figured whatever was going on there was going on there, and I just chewed on my own shit. So I got in, there happened to be a taxi there. I got in and I told him where to take me and I think he was getting a contact high. I know he was. And so much was going on. The streets were passing. 
I pull out a $5 bill that completely stretches the whole length of the cab. And I said, is this enough? <laughs> the cab driver said, that's plenty. <laughs> but the thing was bigger than the cab. It was, it was. And I lived with six other people then. We had marijuana plants growing in the back and strawberries and string beans and Jerusalem artichokes. And we all did yoga. Um, no one was home. So I rose up in a little ball on the floor and I prayed and they found me and they comforted me and they put me in a hot bath and at one point uh, in the bath I said you know you need to find out what's happened to Scott the child because God knows what could have happened to him he was a 12 year old child that we had locked in a room because everyone had a hundred hits of acid I mean, it was like Olivia de Havilland in Snake Pit, that last shot where she's crazy in the asylum and it all looks like snakes. It was that kind of look, thing I saw before I left. I made the conscious choice not to be a part of that. It could have been a good time, but for some reason I said, I'm not doing that. Leave Joyce and her black bag and Antonio and my boyfriend and the fat lady with four butts, and I just was like, I wasn't having any of it, baby. I said, I'm taking my big $5 bill, and I'm going home. <laughs> I look back at it as one of the most amazing moments in my life. As I have grown older, I can look back at it and see the things I missed that were right there for me. Like my respect for James Kirkleski. Oh, can he please even to this day forgive me? I think if we're lucky, we at least find one person in our life that to the day we die, we know we loved totally. And he loved me, he loved me. And I look back, I was bad to him, but not in a cruel way. It's just that I wanted what I wanted. I didn't want him to want what he wanted, but I wanted him to want me. It doesn't work that way, I know now. And I was full of myself back then. But I, I hope one day I see him before I'm gone.
This is Risk. This is Lord Huron behind me now. And we just heard from Shashi Muso. <laughs> just an extraordinary character. There's so many people who have never participated in this whole storytelling phenomena. Uh, you know, you might have a fascinating grandparent or uh, someone who is a regular at a bar that you go to. You might be a social worker who works with extraordinary people who have led extraordinary lives. You might be a part of a 12-step program and know someone interesting who might be able to share with us. Our search never ends. Always feel free to write to me at kevin at risk-show.com. We'll be sure to have Shashi back on. Shashi is an artist who works for the homeless in a homeless shelter right now. And I know he's got a lot more to tell. Our last story on the podcast today comes from another first-time storyteller. Mariah Myers shared this story at our recent show in Minneapolis. And I think so many people that night were so struck by her candor and generosity. I always feel like it's a very generous thing to share a particularly difficult story like this one. Here she is now at our recent Risk Live show at Brave New Workshop in Minneapolis. It's Mariah Myers with a story we call In the Blood. When I was a freshman in high school, I woke up one night to a strange man's voice coming from the other side of my bedroom door. And he was knocking, and he was saying my name over and over again. He had told me that my mom was hurt that he had found her at the bottom of our basement stairs in the hallway to our apartment complex, that she had broken her foot and that she needs to go to the hospital. My reaction to this was slow. It was frustrated. This wasn't the first time that my mom and her alcoholism had woken me up from the middle of the night. She had been an alcoholic and still is for all of my life. And for the most part, when I was younger, it was different for me. I had a different relationship because I was the youngest of two daughters. And for the most part, it was just me and my mom and my sister, who was three years older than me. Occasionally, Although my dad was never present, my mom did have a string of incredibly abusive boyfriends who
who would be in and out of our life, who too struggled with alcoholism. <coughs> As the youngest, I was also her favorite. I came in when a dynamic was already established between her and my sister that was not a good one. And so she relished in the idea of me being a fresh start. So I think for the most part, up until I was about six or seven, when I lived on the perimeter of Madison in Wisconsin in the country, I didn't have a good concept of what her being an alcoholic was because I was her best friend and she was mine and we clung together for safety. And I just saw that as a mother's love and not a mother's coping mechanism. She had always coped with uh, too much alcohol. When I was younger, it was hard liquor. She joked that although I didn't have a dad really in my life, I did have a stepdad and that he was Jack Daniels. <laughs> it's not funny to me yet, but someday I hope I'll get there. Um, so she would stay up all night listening to Ani DeFranco, Jewel, what I came to term her drunk music, which is why I don't really like classic rock. And I would kind of be the one to interact with her, try to get her to calm down, go to bed. Things got a little bit more complicated when we moved to the city because there were just more people to interact with. And it was also when my sister and I started going to public school. Before, we went to country schools that were very small, and we were homeschooled off and on. So we weren't around a lot of other people other than me and my mom and my sister. My sister and my mom had already had an established negative relationship that was emotionally abusive because of my mom's alcoholism and sometimes reached the point of physical violence. My mom only ever hit me once, and it was in high school, and she cried immediately afterwards, and that was not true for my sister, who took the brunt of a lot of her frustration. So when we moved back to the city and my sister started going to school, she very naturally drifted very far apart from me and my mom. And by the time she was 14, she was pregnant and living with my now nephew's paternal grandparents. So it was just me and my mom and her boyfriends. I had gotten used to waking up with my mom in the middle of the night. It's why I uh, actually started locking my bedroom door. She, along with being an alcoholic, also suffered from bipolar disorder and crippling anxiety. So a lot of the times I would find her totally unconscious from pills and alcohol, um, barely breathing. When I was a middle schooler, I had a sinus infection and an upper respiratory infection at the same time. I wanted to take myself to urgent care, but I had to call an ambulance for my mom because she had overdosed on pills. The EMTs said that if I had been there even 10 minutes later, she wouldn't be alive. So I cried that day, but it was not for her, it was for me and the pain that I was in. But I didn't have another option. That was my household, and she was my mom, and I felt an obligation, especially since my sister was totally MIA. 
So by the time I get this knock on my door and my name repeated, I didn't want to get up. I had school the next morning and I had found that education was going to be my way out and that school was my home, the home that I had established and the life that I had established outside of my mom and what was going on. And my teachers were my parents, they were my dad's, they were my mom's um, and my friend's parents took me in no questions asked. And I'm forever grateful. I will forever be grateful to them. So as I was laying in my bed, listening to this strange man who I didn't recognize, but it turns out to be my neighbor, I didn't want to get up, and so I didn't at first. I rolled over, I pulled the blankets up over my shoulders, and I told him to deal with it. And I said, why don't you just call an ambulance? Like, if she's broken her ankle, obviously she needs to go to the doctor. And it's like... 2.33 in the morning. He persists, and my door is locked, right? So he has to keep knocking, and he has to keep saying my name. And I can hear his desperation, so I get up. I walk out the hallway, and the kitchen is this medium-sized kitchenette. And the first thing I see is a trail of blood coming from the front entrance of our apartment, and it's going into the kitchen. And then I smell it. And I don't know if any of you have smelled large quantities of fresh blood, hopefully not, but it has a humidity to it and it's really warm. Like the air is really hot. And you can taste the iron in the back of your throat and it smells like something you definitely shouldn't ever smell. Like it's just a warning. And so, I stop to kind of take that in and I turn to my left and I see a trail of blood going through this shitty apartment linoleum that you get. And my mother is sitting in this red, like corduroy-esque chair that we had at our dining room. And she had her head down. And my mother, she's 5'1", right? But now she's like five foot, she's like shrinking. So every time I see her, she gets smaller, but she's always been small. And she has long brown hair and these feathery straight bangs. So you can just barely see her eyes, which are like icy blue. And she has her head down against her chest and she's like breathing rapidly, but really sporadic. And her ankle is twisted at a really inhuman ankle um, in a leather boot which she loved until she broke her ankle, then she can't wear them anymore. But, um, and she was just mumbling. And I could tell immediately that she had been drinking a lot, very heavily. While I was taking this all in, I also realized that my neighbor had left. So I was alone with her. And my cats were on the counter and they were surveying what was going on. And another thing I should tell you is that three years prior to this, my mom had been diagnosed with hepatitis C. So there was blood everywhere and I couldn't touch her because I couldn't risk that. And I had already known the steps to take being exposed to her blood, but I had never thought that I would be exposed to this much. And she was also menstruating. So there was a lot of different things going on at the same time and I didn't 
want to deal with it and didn't exactly know how to go about it. After a few moments of deliberation and my mom's hazy acknowledgement of me being there, I got on the phone with 911 and I explained to them what was going on and I explained to them that I had no idea how she got to the bottom of the steps and that I have no idea how my neighbor found her at the bottom of the steps but that she was bleeding heavily, she was breathing erratically, and that she needed to go to the hospital. And while I stayed on the phone with the operator, my mom was swaying you know, back and forth on the chair and she was, was touching her jewelry. She wears a lot of jewelry, a lot of big beady jewelry with lots of rings and she was playing with them and I don't know if she had realized what was going on with her foot. And I was answering the operator's questions. I was so irritated. I was growing more and more irritated because if you're the child of an alcoholic, a severe alcoholic like my mother's, it wasn't, it was never fair. It was never fair and you never felt it was fair. But everyone tells you that you can't feel selfishly because it's an addiction. And I understand that. But when I was 14 and when I was younger, I didn't understand it. And I didn't want to understand it. So when the EMTs finally arrived, I let them know that my mom had hepatitis C and that I needed special help cleaning up the blood after they took her down. And seeing them lift up my mom, this like crumpled piece of bloody paper and fit her onto that gurney and then watch them take the gurney down the hallway, which was very narrow at three o'clock in the morning I knew she was in pain, and I knew that she was totally confused and totally scared. But I didn't care. And that's the hardest thing to reconcile with yourself, that at that moment, all I wanted to do was go to sleep. Like, all I wanted to do was go to sleep, and all I wanted to do was get out. And I wanted her to get out. And I didn't go to school the next morning because I was up for three, four hours cleaning up the blood. The EMTs didn't come back. So I had to use their gloves that they had taken off after putting her onto the gurney and slowly clean up the blood by myself. And the next day I spent just cleaning up the house. And she called that day from rehab, which is where she went after they set her foot and I told her I don't want to live in this anymore and I can't do it and I don't think that I don't think that I should have to endure it it took a while for me to fully be outside of my mom's house be outside of living with my mom but more and more I spent every weekday at a friend's house and then every weekend at a friend's house and and I think because I was my mom's favorite, she never thought she had a right to fight for herself to have her daughter in her house. I think she knew that I was set on something and she 
she didn't want to get in the way with, of it. She didn't feel like she had a right to get in the way of it. So by the time I was 17, I declared myself a homeless youth um, because you can't get emancipated in Wisconsin. And technically I was because I was spending every night outside of my home. I was thinking about sharing this story on risk um, and I wasn't sure, but then a couple nights ago, or a couple weeks ago rather, I woke up in the middle of the night to hear my boyfriend calling my name. And it was a voice I had never heard him say before. I, I had never heard that tone and it was so terrifying. And I found him on the floor in the bathroom and blood was gushing out of his nose. And the f my first thought was, he broke something. His nose is broken. And also, my boyfriend is like the most healthy person I've ever met in my life. Um, so I was like, there is an underlying health issue that's going on. It wasn't alcohol related. It turns out he just fainted and hit his head on something in the bathroom. But I called 911 immediately, no hesitation. And I told him that I would come to the hospital with him, but first I cleaned up the blood. So after he left, I was sitting in the bathroom and I was cleaning up the blood and it was so familiar, the smell and the way to clean it. But there was no bitterness and there was no hesitation. I just knew like I wanted to get this done as soon as possible so I could go and meet him. And we spent five hours there in the ER and I was so tired and I had to work in the morning, but I didn't go to work. I called in because I wanted to stay with him. And it was a really big moment for me because it was taking something I was so used to in a really dark place and turning it into something so resilient and so full of love. And uh, I just knew I had to share. Thank you. with me. 
That's all for this week's episode, folks. This is the brave kind behind me now. And don't forget, we have these big shows coming up in Philadelphia and D.C. in August. August 21st is Philadelphia. The theme is Rattled. August 22nd is DC. The theme is ludicrous. We're taking pitches right now for those two shows. So if you have a story along those lines that you might want to share, pitch me at Kevin at risk-show.com. Our next show in Los Angeles is on the 27th at the Nerdist Showroom. The theme that night is conscience. And in New York on that same night, August 27th. The theme is Intimate. We'll be at the People's Improv Theater. If you live in Los Angeles or in New York and you might have a, a story along those lines, write to me at kevin at show.com. We're in Portland and Seattle in September. You can find all of this information at risk-show.com tour. Risk is a very proud member of the Maximum Fun network of podcasts. And like all Maximum Fun podcasts, we are listener supported. So if you love what we do, help us out. We really do rely on the help of our fans. You can go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and make a one-time contribution or become a member and be sure to earmark your contribution for Risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. We used to have a state fair in my hometown, Hutchinson, Kansas, every year. It was a carnival. Well, anyway, they had corn dogs, you know, those deep-fried corn dogs and cotton candy. Well, the corn dog machine must have been really dirty because there was a corn dog that they tried to give me. And my piece of shit that night I ate it looked like that fucking corn dog I had when I was 12 years old and refused to eat. I would rather eat my own shit than eat that fucking corn dog. <laughs>